And I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, this morning. Matthew 4. And I want to just try to be positive for a minute. As you're turning there, I'm going to turn on some positivity if possible. These days, it's very tempting to fall prey to negativity. Negativity is uh, very stifling. Uh, When the children of Israel were negative, wandering in the wilderness, it was very powerful. There's a reason that we are supposed to edify, which you hear that word edifice. We're supposed to literally build each other up rather than tear each other down or even by accident tear each other down by just being negative. Negativity is such an easy thing to fall prey into with our culture and society and and different things we may agree with or disagree with out there, it's easy to kind of glom onto that and just say, man, what is going on? You know, I'm just circling the drain of negativity right now and things that I'm saying or thinking, a mood that I'm in. Well, I want to present a positive picture that the refining that's going on in at least my experience, and I'm sure it's shared right now, as we humbly trust the Lord with our country, as we humbly trust the Lord with, uh, you know, different orders that are handed down in our um, society around us, it, just dynamics. Uh, we ha- wherever you are on the spectrum of agreement or disagreement with anything that's going on, we are cast into a, a, a posture of humble dependence, If you so choose the church, for instance, coming to church in and of itself is a choice to be made that now is not a choice for the consumer, but it is a choice for the Christian to make in terms of his own, his or her own personal wisdom to come and gather Uh, the essential nature of gathering together for the purpose of fellowship comes to mind right now in a way like never before. It's just necessary to get together. It's good to get together in terms of Christian friendship. Because we need it, right? We've been kind of sequestered and now it's time to get together. If it's wise for you to do that, what a joy, what a blessing, you know, just to sing together and be together. And that's what's on my mind. But at the same time, I have to say, I do have some concerns. I do have some questions for the future regarding church. I wonder what my job life is going to be a year from now. Is anybody asking themselves that question? I am as a preacher. I'm going, well, you know, and I've been thinking that in the back of my mind for years, but now it seems a little bit more real to think what's five years from now going to look like in terms of preaching ministry, truth ministry, faithfulness to say what God's word says. I'm a no compromise kind of person. So hopefully the Lord has some way for me to keep communicating truth because that's what I believe he's called me to do. But I think about that. I think about will church be the same? What does church growth look like now? How are we supposed to think in terms of populating a room? It's different than before, right? It feels different. The goal is not, the scorecard is different than ever before in terms of church. Being authentic, being real, coming for the right reasons, coming for fellowship, coming for the word of God. These are what the Bible always says as our motivations for our motivations to be. But now... We really are digging in and thinking that through, aren't we? At least I am, and I think we all are. But a way to answer maybe all of these questions and these positives and competing negatives is to maybe remember a phrase that I was taught way a long time ago when I was studying for ministry in college, and it was this. If you take care of the depth of the ministry, 
God will take care of the breadth of your ministry. If you take care of faithfulness in truth and depth, height and depth, the glory of God and the depth of his word, just let the Lord worry about the other stuff, not that he'd worry about anything. Let him handle all the other stuff. I mean, be the 12, be the 120 in the upper room. Let, let the Holy Spirit come and grow the church, right? And grow it in however he deems growth to be, spiritual growth and depth and height and joy and fellowship and koinonia. That's what we want. That's what we should value. And I think this has been a great sort of revitalizing process for my own heart in that regard. Depth. And let the, let the God of the universe take care of the breadth of the ministry. Let him grow the church. I remember when I was at Christian college, I'll keep it anonymous at this point, but I went to Christian school and um, had a good experience. But part of what I did is not only study to be a pastor uh, at an undergraduate level, but I also basically minored in youth. I, I didn't get a full minor in youth, but I took a lot of youth ministry classes just because my friends were youth ministry majors and I was wanting to be with them because they were excited about the Lord. And, and yet they were more concerned with, um, you know, getting kids involved in programs. And so I was learning about that. And I raised my hand in class at one point and it was about 30, 40 kids in the room. And I said, you know, I really believe that ministry is achieved by taking care of the depth of the ministry and let God take care of the breadth. Well, I didn't realize at that moment that this hulking professor, he was a very large man, kind of reminds you of Rush Limbaugh in his prime. And, and he was very outspoken and demonstrative. He was in charge of the youth department. And uh, he, uh, the youth, I mean, the whole youth, like, Major, he was, he was the face of it. And he just looked at me and his face turned three shades of purple because he had had it with me. And apparently I was this, you know, sort of fly in the ointment, antagonistic questioner about everything because he said that very thing. You, you were always asking questions and it sort of flipped a switch on him. He started to lecture me full mode in front of everybody. I literally felt my body sinking as he was talking and he's full go. And, and he, he's citing a conversation that he's had with my youth pastor who had made his mark in my life. He's several years older than me, his former student. He says, we've conferred. You are this antagonistic person. You just ask questions over and over again. And all the classes sort of looking at him and then turning back to me asking if I'm okay. And so he senses that and starts to, you know, reverse the speech and try to build me up. But it was too late. A person in the back very sheepishly at the end of his speech said, you know, I kind of agree with Jeff. I mean, you take care of the depth and God, right? And it was, you know, it's just one of those moments because what philosophy, the philosophy that the youth department prescribed to at that point was a contextualization philosophy. It was contextualizing. You, their mantra was instead of depth and breadth, it was use the culture to reach the culture. That was said over and over again. And I'm not against building bridges and understanding we're in the 21st century, et cetera, et cetera. I get that, but that's the tail that you don't want wagging the dog. And this environment that we're in right now, and if it gets stronger, if we turn into a society where Christians are genuinely persecuted, we'll see that depth is all we have, height and depth and worship and faithfulness. That's church life. It melts away programmatic scorecards and, and um, consumerism. And it really puts, puts the right focus on truth and on Christ. This was Christ's ministry. And Matthew 4 
is a picture of what we're talking about. Matthew 4, and look at verse 24. I want to ask a question regarding the crowds coming around Jesus because he is doing a philosophy of ministry that reflects depth and breadth. He's deep and the the results are coming massively in his ministry. Look at verse 24. It says, so his Fame spread throughout all Syria. What was, what was Jesus doing to promote this kind of fame? That word fame is kind of a shock word in the Bible. The idea of being famous is typically um, looked upon as uh, sort of self-seeking and selfishness. That's not how it's taken biblically here. And we'll unpack that. But nevertheless, Jesus was very famous and the crowds were coming from the north, the south and the east and the west. They were coming from, he's in Galilee at this stage in his ministry. He's called four of his 12 disciples. He's called fishermen, busy fishermen, as Warren Wiersbe put it. Why do you call fishermen? Because fishermen are busy. They're not sit around type people. They're doers. He's moving and shaking. He's doing ministry. People are coming from Damascus, 200 miles above Galilee. They're coming from the far southern region of Judea, below Jerusalem. They're coming from the far east, Decapolis, across the Jordan. They're, they're coming in that way. And they're coming to the far west, which is Transjordan, all that language. All your whole Bible map in the back of your Bible is coming to Jesus. It is a lot, lot, lot of people. Jesus is in a 40 by 70 mile area and he's ministering all the time. And he's doing three things all the time that constitute depth that's creating this breadth. And I just want to talk about that. That's creating what at least my English standard version calls fame. It's the word uh, from akuo, which is from where we get the word acoustic. It's a reverberating reputation. It's a sound wave movement where people are going, you know, who is this man that is doing these things? And so everybody's coming to him. Nobody's doubting the fact that they're going to see the power of God on display in his ministry. So what did he do? What was his ministry defined as? And it was a triple function ministry. Taking notes, it's Jesus triple function ministry. He was preaching or he was teaching, preaching and healing. It's the trifecta. He was teaching, preaching, and healing. That's what he was doing. It's what he was all about all the time as a busy fisher of men, a busy fisherman, just moving around. What did he cast in the water? He cast out teaching, and he cast out preaching, and he was healing. Those are the three things he's doing all the time. Busy people are the ones who get it done, right? You might say, well, a busy person is always doing the right thing. But a busy person, an active person, is typically getting it right most of the time and getting a lot done. And Jesus was very busy throughout all Galilee. A hundred years later, historians talking about Galilee said there were 204 cities and villages with populations reaching up to 15,000 in each. So how long would it have taken for Jesus to get around and minister to these villages and cities? Well, the idea is on a lesser scale, 100 years earlier, it probably would have been two villages a day visiting the synagogue, teaching, preaching, and then healing the masses, two villages a day in this dizzying, busy, almost incomprehensibly um, undoable life that he was living. He wasn't a recluse. He wasn't a hermit. He wasn't a reclusive rabbi and teacher. He was out 
in the geography, in the highways and byways of Galilee, which is an admixture of Jews and Gentiles, the king of the Jews reaching the Jews first, but also the Gentiles in this melting pot of an environment as we've talked about. And he's teaching. What's he doing? It says, first and foremost, he's teaching. And I don't come by that lightly. What is he doing? Well, he's throughout all Galilee and he's teaching. Didascalos, he's teaching. Why is that important? Well, it's because it's important because he's setting the tone for ministry. Ministry is teaching. It's other things, but it's teaching. Don't underestimate the power of teaching, being taught or teaching. The Bible commands that we teach all that Christ has commanded to make disciples, to make learners, to make followers, and we teach. When you listen to somebody talk, you can tell what they've been taught. Always ask them about abortion. Ask them about partial birth abortion. Ask them about life in the womb. Ask someone about the, the length of the earth. Ask someone about their view of the word of God as truth, as the ultimate truth. Ask them a philosophical question like that. Is this the truth that governs all truth? Does the word of God define reality to us? Ask someone their definition of sin. Ask them about eternal death. Ask them about hell. Ask them about afterlife and heaven. You'll know whether someone is taught well or not by asking those kinds of questions. And someone is shaped by being taught. That's why it's so important that we sit under teaching. We sit under truth. That's why it's important we study the Bible because the word of God shapes how we'll think and how someone thinks determines how they act and how they live and who they worship. Teaching, teaching, teaching. That's why I love our Grace Christian School. I didn't mean to bring that into the sermon too much, but you know, the students up, up front, one thing you can know about them is they're being taught. I'm so glad my kids are being taught the word from people from a variety of, of backgrounds, but they're governed under the truth. And I know that the truth is filling their minds and filling their hearts. And it's not just me teaching them, but it's other people teaching them. And it's so important. Teaching ministry changes lives. And Jesus was teaching in synagogues. Synagogues were the, you know, like the Baptist church in the little town. If you're ever traveled to a Southern community, you'll see the little Baptist church and it will have a big spire on it. And these synagogues were little with a big spire on it. And they would be on the hill or by the riverbank in a prominent place that people would show up. A synagogue is different than the uh, temple. There was one temple in Jerusalem where sacrifices were done. Synagogues were in any place that the Jews were colonized hundreds of miles or near Jerusalem or around Jerusalem, but even hundreds of miles away, you would have sort of a, a colonized center point of thinking and conversing and studying scripture and hearing readings and, and dialoguing about truth in these synagogues. That's what they were for. You'd have about four different um, elder leaders in that context. Someone would open the word of God, just like Nehemiah did when um, the exiles came back from Babylonian captivity and they would read the truth. They would read the scripture and explain it. And then people would dialogue about it. You'd have visiting rabbis who would be welcome, teachers who would be affirmed to come in and teach like Jesus did when he was handed the scroll and it was Isaiah and it was all about him who would give sight to the blind and the, the deaf would hear and the dumb would would speak and he would give life, you know, taking people out of darkness into light. And he was fulfilling that prophecy as he preached 
and taught the word in the synagogue. You remember in the book of Acts where Paul would go into cities and where would he go? He'd go into basically the liberal church or the university center where people were thinking. They weren't coming to the right conclusion, right? They were working it out. They had an Old Testament background, but they didn't have Christ to put all the pieces together and make sense of the law, make sense of why you would obey the law from faith and not out of works and duty. And Paul was tying together a biblical theology so that the lights would come on. Well, Jesus pioneered this ministry in the synagogues. And at this point in his ministry, in his mission, the synagogue door was open. Now, let's not oversell the greatness of these synagogues. Ultimately, the Sanhedrin had control of these. You have Pontius Pilate, who's leading in a synagogue. And they're they're negotiating how to crucify Christ, ultimately. But the synagogue was a great opportunity. I know of some people who actually... I'm not recommending this, but they'll actually um, engage liberal churches sometimes and even join Sunday school classes, go to a solid church, but then join a Sunday school class because they know how to teach the Bible. They say, well, why don't you teach the Bible? And then they start teaching the Bible as an evangelistic outreach in liberal churches, a radical thought. But that's this type of ministry. It's kind of interesting. Going to the synagogues, going to natural environments where people are thinking and speaking about the Bible so that you can think and speak about the Bible correctly. I think a lot of times we force evangelism when there are a lot of unforced, easy opportunities where you can naturally converse about the truth, about life. And people are hungry for that. They need to be taught truth. I went to a movie recently, and you can forgive me for that, but I did go to a movie, I confess, publicly and on live stream. Um, I had my daughter with me, and I, I had my son and, and um, his friend with, with him, and, and so we're watching this thing, and what's amazing to me is how the, all the previews and all the movie were basically talking about what's really going on out there. It's, they're asking the question about... Um, really identity in a world and are there outside influences and forces that are engaging why we're doing what we're doing? Are there things from the future that are relating to the now and, and what's happening existentially and, and why is it there? That's what people are thinking about. And it, it's over and over and over again, whether it's a comedy or a rom-com or, or one of these science fiction things, everybody's sort of asking the existential question right now. What's the meaning of life? Where am I going? Are there outside forces influencing what's happening? What does it all mean? Well, we have the answers to these questions. We really do. You just have to study and ask those questions. Yes, there's a God. Yes, he's eternal. Yes, he's the Trinity. Yes, the Son of God can get us to heaven. Yes, heaven is real. Heaven is is one that we will enjoy. We'll, we'll physically be there in resurrected glory where we'll be able to eat and participate with, with known relationships of people we knew here that we'll know there. I mean, this is just off the top of my head, but we know these things. We know we can be forgiven of sin. We're not earning our way to, to heaven. We're saved by grace alone. It's a free gift by Christ to, Christ's death, burial, resurrection. We understand these things. We can be free from guilt. We, we, can, we can understand why you get sick and, and where you're going after you die. I mean, these are difficult questions that the world is asking, but in their natural mindedness, they don't have crystal clarity on the solution. 
the movies get it right some of the time because of common grace. But they don't have resolve. They don't have conviction. They don't have true faith. And we do. It's not a pride thing. It's just true. And we need to be taught and we need to teach people. And we also need to preach to people. (laughs) The second thing Jesus did was preach. And you say, well, what's the difference between teaching and preaching? Well, in preaching, there should be teaching. We we preach the word, we reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience, but also with instruction. So we're instructing, we're reading the word of God and we're explaining the word of God. We're rightly dividing the word of truth. That's what I'm called to and what I'm doing. I'm training some preachers in our little seminary we have right now. They're preaching. We have people in Sunday school class or fellowship groups that are preaching. Preaching is where you are definitive with what you're saying. It's not a dialogue. It's, it's a monologue. It's one directional. It is a dialogue in the sense that the receptor, the listener is cogitating and thinking with me, but the Lord is doing work in your heart as you hear the word of God and you're preached to, you're confronted, you're warned about eternal realities, about the danger of sin. You're warned to move away from that, to repent of sin. You're, you're exhorted to move towards Christ. You're brought to a verdict. You're brought to a decision point where it demands a verdict. It demands a decision. This is preaching. And it overlaps with teaching, but it is preaching. And Jesus preached the kingdom of God. Jesus, as the word of God, brought the kingdom of God. He was the message himself, and he was the messenger preaching the word of God, keruks, kerygma. He's keruksing, he's proclaiming, he's proclamating the word of God as a town crier saying, the kingdom is here, the kingdom is now. Think about it, confronting. It's more than just an exercise conversation. It's dynamic and it reflects the power that's in the word. The reason I preach is so that the Bible will do its work in your heart. I am not ever preaching to make you a better Bible student. I've heard people say that, well, you know, the reason we exposit the word of God is so people can find it later for themselves. That is not what this moment is about. That's a byproduct. Great. If it doesn't happen, I'm still okay with that. I just want you to do business with the Lord. I need it. I need the defibrillator paddles. I need, you know, clear, come alive. Remember, with all that's going on out there, we have Christ in our hearts, the hope of glory. We, are, we have the kingdom of God, which is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. We are living in the kingdom of God now. We're looking for the future kingdom, a millennial reign in the future when Jesus returns. Kingdom is, is what we're a part of, and we're part of that together. That's, preaching should bring you to that, arrived at conclusion on a Lord's Day like this, where you go, yes, yes and Amen. But there's also teaching. You're informed, you're dialoguing, or you're listening, and you're working through it. And then there's preaching where you go, yes, and it's convictional. I'm not going to go into that too much more. I talk about preaching a lot. Um, We are going to look at the Sermon on the Mount, which is the next chapter, the next couple chapters. And the reason that um, I'm not going to go into it is because I'll go into it a lot with going through the Sermon on the Mount. But maybe that was Jesus' sermon. As he's going from village to village, he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount. We might have his manuscript right here in front of us to get to the heart, to get to people to go, how do you live the Beatitudes? How do you live blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God? How do you live those verses? By faith. Only by faith. By a transformed heart. It brings us to the final um, point. The trifecta of ministry is teaching, preaching and healing. We're talking about healing. 
it's a controversial topic in the church, so buckle up. Um, you're going to hear um, my perspective from the Word of God on healing, and I think it's important um, in terms of some confusion that's been in the church, uh, and it's been more pervasive in past times of uh, faith healers and false teachers who pretend to heal in Jesus' name. Um, let me just say this up front. When Jesus healed, and this is what we learned from Scripture, when Jesus healed, a couple of things were always happening. His healing was comprehensive, never partial, and it was also instantaneous. It was comprehensive and instantaneous. You say, well, what about the blind man where he put the mud on the eyes? Well, he was making a point there. But in general, it's comprehensive, meaning it's total. There's not a partial healing. The healing isn't just for those who are on the front row who are pre-selected to come up, who will like have some sort of fit on the stage and then maybe be healed. And then it kind of wears off. And people do that for money. That's not healing ministry. It's not what we're talking about. Healing is not something that's isolated to a geographic church area where you come into the healing zone. I've heard that heresy espoused. People do that for power. They do it for money. It's wrong. When Jesus healed, he was interrupting the natural with supernatural healing. When healing happened in the Old Testament, it was the same thing. Miracles are just that. They are interruptions. They are interventions from the supernatural realm that are intervening into the natural realm. That's healing ministry. It was very demonstrative. It was, it was very authentic It was not something that was debated or debatable. When someone was healed, they were healed. Think about when the man with the withered hand, his hand was made whole and the Pharisees are saying, well, he can't do that work on the Sabbath. They weren't contradicting the fact that the man had a new hand or a hand that was restored. They were having a problem with him doing something on the Sabbath, breaking the law. Healing is irrefutable when it is from Christ. There's no maybe about it. The blind see, the deaf hear. How did this happen? They asked the young man, you know, and his parents, right? Remember that story? It's because it happened. When Jesus healed, he did it all the way, comprehensive, never partial, and instantaneously. Look at verse 23. We're still in one verse. (laughs) Here we go. It... um, It says that he was healing every disease and every affliction among the people, Jews and Gentiles alike. This is the Galilee of the Gentiles. Earlier, the prophecy of Isaiah says that in this chapter. It's an admixture of Jews in the synagogues and then all the reputational dynamic where people are bringing people in droves. Jesus' fame is spreading all through Syria. Syria there is a... It's a it's nomenclature from the Romans where it's like it's a Roman providential region to cover all of your Bible map. They're coming north, south, east, and west, coming Transjordan, across the Jordan, however they got around from Decapolis. These were Greco-Roman cities to the east on the far side of Jordan, you know, from New York City to Maine to Florida to California. I mean, it's like north, south, east, and west of your Bible map in a pedestrian societal sense. They're coming in droves by the thousands because Jesus is healing instantaneously and comprehensively and irrefutably. There's no doubting about his healing ministry. Let me say this as well. His healing was episodic, meaning it happened for a reason in in an episode. 
wasn't happening all the time, and it didn't happen for everyone, um, even everyone he came in contact with. But as people came to him, he was not putting anybody off. He was, he's the faithful high priest, same yesterday, today, and forever. He will in no wise cast anyone out that comes to him. And so as they came to him, he was healing them. He was meeting their need, and he was showing the kingdom of God. Heaven was coming down on earth in that moment to prove heaven is real, to prove kingdom is real, and to prove that Jesus is who he said he was, fully divine, fully God, fully Messiah. He's the healer. He's the one of whom Isaiah spoke. He is that person. That's why that was going on. You say, well, why are some people healed and some people aren't healed even today? If you know of someone that you suspect was supernaturally healed, there was a tumor and then later the doctor looks and it's gone and there's no explanation and you believe that's supernatural healing and it very well could be. Why are some healed and some are not? Well, why when Jesus came, didn't he heal everybody on the planet? Well, it's it's because the point of the healing was to point to a future kingdom. That's why. Any believer will be ultimately healed. And it's sad to to lose loved ones to sickness. And I I don't want to understate that. It's difficult. It's heart-rending. We have to trust the Lord with that. But at the resurrection, everyone's healed. Everyone is glorified who is a believer Romans 8, 29, you'll be glorified. You will be completely healed. In heaven, there's no more tears, no more crying, no more suffering in heaven, no more, no more sadness, no more demons in heaven. There's, the kingdom of God brings wholeness instantaneously. You're in heaven instantaneously, comprehensively, you're healed. Those who are healed, let me say this statement as well. Those who are healed were healed by Jesus or through the power of the Holy Spirit by, by the apostles would ultimately be sick again. Um, if their hand was healed, it was still healed, but it was still going to be affected by the fall. It's interesting, isn't it? If healing is the end all, then why is there digression after heal, healing? Why is there any... any um, Atrophy after someone is healed. It's kind of like when somebody like Eutychus was raised from the dead, dead, or the little girl where Jesus said, little girl arise, Talitha kum, get up. I mean, those people who were brought from death to life, the, the widow's son at Nain who, you know, maybe sits up in the casket type moment. I mean, they're still going to die in their, in their lifetime. They were still susceptible to sickness and, and digression because of the fall. It's, it, was, it was because the purpose of healing and the purpose of these miracles was to prove that Christ was divine, to prove that the kingdom of God is real, and for people to look future by faith to the ultimate healing that comes in heaven. Heaven's promise is the kingdom's promise. That's the ultimate promise. If you want to know what heaven is like, look at Jesus here in Galilee in this episode, because that's heaven on earth. We experience that to a varying degree in church, or we should. We should hear the word of God taught, have our answers, our questions answered. Wow, okay, all right, I don't have to get it from Hollywood. I can get it this way. I don't have to live for a political party. I can live for these answers here that are more solid and divinely solid compared to other answers that are given that are temporal. We have eternal life. Uh, We hear preaching. I can be convictional. I can know why I believe what I believe and stand on it and stake my life on it. Preaching. I can hear it and believe it. And then finally, I can be healed. 
And the healing that Christ offers um, most often is the heart healing where people are made back whole. And people should sense the healing power of God in relationships in your heart and your soul, having your sins forgiven, be reminded of that healing. Does healing happen now? Does it happen today, supernaturally, instantaneously, and comprehensively? Well, God can do anything. He can do it. I'm sure he does it. I think in the pre-time, pre-the millennium kingdom in the future, we'll see some supernatural events that will be like this and they'll be demonstrative. They'll be emphatic. They'll be irrefutable. It's important to know that. I think if you are looking for supernatural intervention, you come to the elders by James 5 and you seek prayer for God to intervene. And if he so chooses to do that, he will. But the point of Jesus coming and healing demonstrably in this way was to show that we should have the kingdom and be reconciled in our heart to that. Well, there's more on healing to talk about because the, the Bible does. And so I want to keep not belaboring the point, but at least explaining the text as we go through it. It says, Jesus' fame th- spread throughout all Syria. I want to just mention the question of fame here um, is not one of self-glory. Jesus was never seeking glory. Um, you could make the word fame synonymous with the word influence or reputation, Jesus' reputation was akuo. It was, it was acoustically reverberating out to society. Everybody was hearing about Jesus. Nobody was doubting the power and purpose of Jesus. Everybody was seeing that he was saying he was Messiah, that he was bringing the kingdom, that his purpose was to promote the kingdom and not even himself. He was submissive to the Father's will. And so the word fame could be a little bit, you know, kind of like a question mark in your mind. But fame here is put in the most positive sense, a righteous sense. And Jesus was taking care of the depth of his ministry. And he was leaving the breadth of the ministry up to God's will. You know, the... uh, Healing power of Jesus isn't even described here. There are episodes in scripture that talk about Jesus, you know, using spittle and mud and touching, but, or someone touching the hem of Jesus's garment. But ultimately, that's not the point. That's why I shy uh, somewhat away from movies that try to depict Jesus healing, because that's just, that is play acting. We don't really know what that would look like. And anyway... That's not the point. The point is all these people were coming to him. And I want to point this out. One of the main points for these descriptions of who was coming to him is to point out the compassion of Christ. Christ was loving people who were being, the word here for afflicted is tortured. You could make that um, the case that the, the word could be interpreted as tortured. People were being tortured in three categories. First of all, they were being tortured by disease. Secondly, they were being tortured by demons. Thirdly, they were being tortured in their delirium. Disease, demons, and delirium. Okay, I alliterated, you know, write it down. All that to say, these, these are categories that were causing people to fear for their life. There wasn't antiviral back then. There wasn't um, antibiotics. If you were diseased, and the the word is various here, if you had a multicolored disease that you just didn't know what was going to happen to you, 
Very similar to how people are reacting to the COVID plague and, and people are, are un, they, they don't know how contagious it is or not. And apparently it's more contagious than other things that we've experienced. And so people are nervous about it. Well, people were really nervous about being caught with or catching a disease back then because there, there weren't hospital units and there, there wasn't medications and antivirals and therapeutic drugs. There, there was no relief. There was no safety net whatsoever. And so they were coming to Christ and they were coming, believing that they were under a death sentence. And so they were coming to him. And that's why people were bringing him from faraway regions. It's what was happening. And so they were afflicted with various disease and pains. These are categories of pain and suffering. And Jesus had compassion on them. We should have compassion on everyone who has a disease or is immunocompromised. We should have that kind of loving compassion, should we not? We love people and reflect that. The second category is one I want to pick up on, though, demons. I want to talk about demons. Demons are real. Demons are out there. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but principalities and rulers. That's um, Ephesians chapter 6. Demons are real. They are fallen angels. They are those who willingly chose to follow Satan. A third of them fell, and they are on the attack. I think that perhaps we should interpret and apply James 4, resist the devil and he will flee from you. The devil in terms of his emissaries, the demons, we're resisting demonic false teaching, demonic ideologies, demonic falsehood that will terrorize us and will mess us up and draw us away from truth. Demons are, are, are included in this list that Jesus was curing for a reason. And it's kind of curious because a lot of people have attributed maladies like epilepsy, seizures. They've attributed um, disease to demons. You know, the demon of this, the demon of that. You have the demon of this. That was very in vogue in the late 80s, early 90s to talk that way in the church. You, in Christian sort of psychobabble, you've got the demon of this and that. No, that's not why the demons are included here as what was going on. When you think in terms of disease and you think in terms of people crazed in their minds where they're losing bodily functions and you think in terms of demons, these all have one thing in common. They're source. They're all sourced in our common problem that we all have and that is sin. Jesus brought the gospel of the kingdom. Why? To solve the sin problem. The problem with our culture, the problem with our world that's under the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air, is sin. The reason Satan is Satan is sin. He's trying to incite us to sin. People are demonized or demon-oppressed or even demon-possessed because of the effects of the fall, which is sin. Sin. Witchcraft comes from sin. Sin is the root cause. And Jesus is saying, I'm bringing the solution to the cause. And so the effects of the sin cause is demons and disease and delirium. But the demons, I want to talk about them. What's happening there? Well, people who are demonized, specifically demon-possessed, are those who are unbelievers. 
I don't believe that someone who is a Christian can be demon-possessed. I believe you can be demon-tempted. You can, you can experience um, oppression, but ultimately you cannot be possessed by a demon. And I just reconcile that with God's word, First John 4, 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, meaning overcome the Antichrist, First John 4, 3. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Greater is he who is in you. Christ is greater in you than he who is in the world, Satan. There's a bifurcation. If you're in Christ, you're not in Satan. Second Corinthians chapter six, verse 14 and 15. You can't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, fellowship with light, or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial or Christ with Satan? That those rhetorical questions are to say nothing. Christ in me means that I cannot be dominated by a demon. A demon cannot control me if Christ has me. Um, for uh, Romans 8 says, nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Not height, depth, angels or principalities. Angels are demons. Demons cannot separate you from God's love, from God's embrace. Christ in you is, is protecting you from a demon inhabiting you. Now, Jesus, when he encountered people who were in, inhabited by demons like Mary Magdalene, he cast out seven demons out of Mary Magdalene. He cast out the demon, out the little boy who was being tossed, you know, his own volition mixed with a demon. He was tossing himself into the fire, into the water. How scary is that to have a kid over by water where you think their life is in danger? Terrifying, terrifying. Believe me, I know. <laughs> However, Christ had compassion on those people. He cast demons out. The word is ek ballistic for cast out. It means like a ballistic missile. He took that demon and threw it out. That was the ministry of Christ. That was kingdom ministry, kingdom dynamic, like healing. It's a demonstrative supernatural intervention saying, I'm casting that out of a person to show that in heaven, this is heaven on earth, in heaven, there's no more dying, no more crying, no more suffering, and no more demons in heaven. There's a moral dimension to where demons come from. Sin. And oftentimes when people are tempted in demonic ways, tempted to compromise on the gospel, seduced by enemy darts that are coming in from demons. Ephesians 6 says Satan is going to send fiery darts that we have to hold up the shield of um, you know, the shield of truth, the breastplate of righteousness. We're, we're, we're called to be morally um, pure, to be right with God, to trust the grace of the gospel, the truth. And that defends us from these darts that come that are demonic. So how, did, how do we deal with um, demons and their influence? Because they are around. Well, first of all, we have to cling to truth. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says we're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Be on guard against that which is false, which looks almost true, but is false. Angel of light theology that says, oh, believe this, you know, compromise a little bit on Christ. Maybe he was born or something. Watch out for that. The other thing is watch out for people who are under demonic influence who are seduced in falsehood. 
Um, that can be terrifying. One time I was here um, before Grace Christian School was opening. It was like 7.30 and there was a lady who was um, in her 20s or something and she was sitting behind a, our grand piano that sometimes is on the stage and she was banging on the keys. And I thought, I thought she was just playing around. And then I, no, you're, you're banging on the keys. That's weird. And it was dark in the room and I was standing at the doorway and I called out to her. I said, can I help you? You know, I'm pastor of the church here. Can I help you? And she just started like, I mean, it looked freaky. She was out of her head, looked at me and just started walking to me like, okay, this is different because she's not talking and she's walking with purpose. And I said, why don't you come into the light, uh, literally come into the light. And so as I backed up, uh, you know, Sandy Johnson and some other people came around us because this lady looked like she was going to attack and she was out of her head. And so we started to talk about her faith and I was sharing Christ and she had no connection to be here except that she was in the building and uh, she had no kids here or anything. And we were giving the gospel to her and she was kind of espousing a false gospel and some weird errant theology. And then she started to be sensual. And, and so as a group, we're going, you know, this is not right, not righteous, and we're sending you away. So we walked her to the door. And as I walked her to the door with the group behind me, she literally turned around because she stopped. I said, you need to go. She turned around and said, no, and just stared me down. And I'm like, whoa, okay, this is maybe not going to go well. I'm not sure. So then she turned around and left and then she came back in and we ultimately had to call the police and a policeman restrained her and took her, took her away. But later, a different first responder from our church showed me a video. Weeks later, she came in at Subway when this police officer was standing ordering his sub in full um, dress blues with his partner and she was there and on camera she attacked him and he had to take her down. So that could have happened to me. It was um, by God's grace, it didn't. The Lord was good. I mean, you just, I mean, I don't want to either go on and on about stories like these or it could be boring or it could be enjoyable. I don't know. But I mean, I I talked to, there was one other one. It was a guy who stayed in my dorm at Liberty on the East Coast and he listened to a bunch of preaching tapes um, and I was hosting him as a, a, a possible student to go there. And then later, years later, I was at Masters University. I'm walking down the main thoroughfare and there he is again. And he was, he was walking out of the administrative building and he was out of his head and he was odd on the East Coast, but he was more odd on the West Coast. Don't read too much into that. But it just was, he just was crazy. And he was flicking his fingernails and jamming his hands in his pockets and taking them out. And, but what tipped me off that he was under a demonic influence is he started to talk to himself and, and debate out loud as to whether he should tell me something. And he, he confessed that he believed he was the fourth member of the Trinity, God, the father incarnate as he standed, stood before me. And so I delegated him over to somebody who uh, could handle that. And someone began to preach the gospel to him and try to help him. And security was you know, alarmed or not alarmed, but alerted. Uh, we should just be aware that demons are real and, and that we fight for truth. We fight for truth and we give them the gospel and we want people to be delivered. How can somebody be, de- how can someone be delivered from a demon? Not through our kind of ecbalistic ministry. Our, our, our ministry is the gospel. We're called to give people the gospel. And if someone believes the gospel, the demon goes away. That's what I believe we have in the truth. Well, the last category of suffering is delirium. I won't belabor this, but it's uh, those who are 
epileptics and paralytics. Epileptic here is the word that actually builds our English word lunatic. And that's uh, someone who's lunar or moonstruck. It's someone who's out of their head. And this is less talking physiological. It's talking more mental where someone is crazed and they're out of their head. And I just want to take an opportunity to say, if someone's body is failing, don't give up on them spiritually. Give truth to people. If someone is suffering retardation, give them the gospel, give them truth. And it's amazing how well people can respond to truth and the gospel. As a church, our ministry is to teach, it's to preach, and it's to heal. It's to give people truth and have their hearts bound back together. And we're always meant to love people. The last verse really answers the first two questions that I asked at the beginning. What is our ministry supposed to be like? It says the great crowds followed him. The word followed here does not necessarily mean they truly were Jesus' disciples. People were following from Galilee, but they were following in great crowds. And so our goal is not to gather a great crowd as the goal of church. Our goal is depth and trusting for breadth. And then secondly, the... uh, the question of, of fame, we always want to give glory to God no matter what. Jesus was never proud. And so if, even if crowds followed him in fickle faith, he just did his ministry no matter what. The goal for our church is just to plod, to week in, week out, preach truth, gather, teach, hear preaching or preach, and to be together This is essential life together. This is the healing heart ministry of church. It's what we need. We need each other like never before. Let me ask this question. Are you like the crowds who wanted Jesus genuinely or who were following Jesus superficially? People came from all over. They came from north, south, east, and west. That's what's represented here in Galilee, Decapolis, Jerusalem, and Judea, and beyond the Jordan. They're all over. Are you real or not? Do you know Christ personally or do you know about Jesus Christ? It's a question, right? Do you, have you experienced the benefits of the gospel personally or have you experienced the benefits of the gospel at arm's length? Where, oh, I know the power of God, but it's out here. Is it in here? Do you know the Lord Jesus? Do you love Jesus or watch this? Do you love the idea of Jesus? Do you genuinely know him? Do you genuinely know him and love him? If you believe the gospel, you have heaven on earth in your heart now and you have the promise of heaven for all of eternity.